Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm K.W. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And today we're going to talk about writing processes, and then we're bringing in a special guest to discuss the book and film The Wave, which is based on a real-life social experiment. So Carrie, you've been reading some stuff recently about writing, women writing, and some of your favorite authors have shared some stuff about that. So what have you been learning and thinking about writing? Well, I recently listened to A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, Uh and I read The Writing of Fiction by Edith Wharton, who is my absolute favorite author. Uh And I've just been thinking a lot about the craft and how we approach it and things like that. So instead of like talking about what they said, I came with a couple of discussion questions. Oh, okay. (laughs) Is that good? That's great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Have you read A Room of One's Own? I have not actually read that in its entirety. I've read some excerpts and I've read other stuff by her, but I haven't read all of that. So yeah, what is what does she say in that? Well, honestly, it's probably good just to read some excerpts because I thought it was a little bit too long. (laughs) (laughs) But her main thesis is that in order to write, women need a room of their own and 500 pounds a year. Okay. So some sort of steady income that lets them not worry about expenses. Mm -hmm. So my question for this one is just, what do you think modern writers need in order to write? And how do we how do we go after those things? Well, I think a steady income is important, either an income from your writing or an income separate from your writing that allows you to do it. It kind of depends on how how well you're doing, what kind of publishing you're doing, if you're doing any publishing. Mm-hmm. So some kind of way to support yourself. And instead of a room of your own, I think you need like the devices that allow you to write, whether that's a computer, word processor, even writing by hand and having the ability to get it transcribed later. You do, you need a space to do so that is whatever level of privacy or quiet that you need. I have a nice home office that I really like. And I also like to go write in coffee houses and libraries. Mm-hmm. I have a writing group that meets, we typically meet about once a month and we we reserve a little study room in a library. Oh, that's nice. And we write together for three hours, four hours on a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon. And I get more done in those sessions than I do interspersed throughout an average week. So, Yeah, that's a pretty good chunk of time. Yeah, yeah. And the peer pressure of having other people doing the exact same thing Ooh, is really helpful. Peer pressure, yeah. yes. Peer pressure is very helpful. But that's what I think you need, like supplies. But the supplies are not extensive like you could even get a very secondhand computer with just internet or word processing on it and that's it and you'd be fine Mm -hmm. so you don't need to spend a ton a ton of money what do you think the modern writer needs huh i don't know if i have anything to add because i feel like that that really has stayed true over the last hundred years and hmm what do you what do you use to write and where do you write and what are your tools? I use my laptop a lot, uh-huh. but my desk is in my bedroom and like my desk right now is very messy. <laughs> so, so sometimes it's just not a good atmosphere uh-huh. to write. And I've been doing more more of the other side of of writing, like the business side. So formatting books and editing and, and doing all of that stuff. Uh-huh. 
and that seems that seems to work better than actual writing at my desk. So, yeah, sometimes I like to go places like coffee shops and Panera and libraries. I also have a notebook. I have a couple notebooks actually. One, I like little journal size notebooks that they have to be bendy. <laughs> they can't be too hard, mm-hmm. but I carry one of those around and if I'm somewhere and I get some ideas or have some time to write. And a lot of times if if I'm having trouble writing a scene, I will go to the notebook instead of my computer because it forces me to slow down a little bit and it's a little bit less daunting than than a blank page on the computer. Yeah. And I also have a bigger notebook that I use to brainstorm. Uh-huh. So for me a lot of a lot of the pre-writing, I have to write it down and just jot things like, hey, this character is over here. What what are they up to? What are the threads that I need to pull through from the previous books and things like that? So yeah, I wish I had more money, more disposable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> disposable money. But uh, I don't really have a lot to add to that. Well, I think another thing that people discount or becomes an obstacle in writing is time. Ah, uh, So it's not always about the literal space, because especially now, I think we're much more mobile, even if we're using electronics, it's much easier to kind of move yourself around and find a space that, you know, works for you or or whatever. And the money part, if you have a day job or multiple day jobs, or you're doing some freelancing or whatnot, or you've got a, you know, full time main career, that becomes a little bit of an impediment to getting the writing done. So I'm fortunate currently that I've got a lot of flexibility of my schedule that I can fit writing in in little bursts whenever I want. But it's it's hard to do more than about an hour a day, honestly. But I know that when I had a much more fixed full-time job at a single employer that it was really difficult to find enough time to write. And I would make use of lunch hours. I basically would not go out for lunch and I would write on my lunch hours. Or mm-hmm. I would stay late at work and actually write at work because it was quiet and no one else was there. But that's a lot of time to devote. And, you know, since I i don't have any children and I have an understanding spouse and whatnot, I could do things like that. But if you've got a lot of other responsibilities, it's really, it's really difficult to find that time. Yeah, that's very true. And I know, too, that some people, it's difficult to fit in a sustained writing session. Yeah. And so what's your process in terms of whether you like, like, what's the shortest amount of time that you could write and feel like you made some progress on something? Probably an hour. Okay. I know it should be more like half an hour. But a lot of times it just takes me too many minutes to to get back into it and get my head in the right space. Mm -hmm. I mean, you seem like you can kind of pick up for 15 minutes and and write something and go. I can, but some days that's really hard too. And I think that probably that sweet spot of 30 to 45 to 60 minutes is better. But I also don't feel the need to do, you know, two and three and four hours. And I know that some people feel like if I can't get in a good two hour session, it's not even worth it. And I guess it also depends what I'm working on. I can do little bits of like some nonfiction work in like a two sentence burst and feel like that's enough for today or for now. Mm -hmm. With fiction writing, I think it is a little bit harder and that getting in a longer groove is a little bit better. 
But I'm a big fan too, and I've probably talked to you about this ad, ad nauseum, but this thing called the Pomodoro method. Have I talked to you about yeah. this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so for our listeners, the Pomodoro method, Pomodoro is Italian for tomato, and it's based on the concept of a little kitchen timer that's shaped like a tomato, although they have some that look <laughs> like eggs and stuff. And I don't use a literal kitchen timer, but you're supposed to set this timer for 25 minutes and work sustainably uninterrupted for 25 minutes, and then you get a five-minute break. And you do four of those in a row, and then after that last one, you get a half-an-hour break, and you're supposed to either do another set of the four Pomodoro after that, or you're good. And I don't totally do that anymore, but I'll do little, um, even shorter bursts of like 15 minutes and a five-minute break, or I'll do a longer like 30 minutes and a five-minute break. But doing like a set number of minutes of, of writing or working on whatever, and then a five-minute break, that cycle is really helpful, especially if you're working on something that you're not super stoked about or some part of something that's really difficult. It really makes it seem much more manageable because you can do anything for 15, 20, 25 minutes usually, and knowing that you've got an endpoint and a little reward at the end makes it easier to do. Right. That actually is a really good method. And I, I don't use as much as I should because I remember what I was going to say before, and that was I tend to think more in terms of words than time. Yes. So I try to write 500 words a day. Okay. On the days that I write, I don't write every single day. Okay. Like sometimes I shoot for more, like I sh I'll shoot for a thousand, but those 500 words that I really want to get, they can either take me like half an hour or they can take me two hours. So I think that's why I'm not used to thinking about it in terms of time because mm -hmm. it really just depends on I want to get to that 500 words and, and at least that's like a page and a half, two pages and it it lets me see some progress. Yeah. I think that um, you've done, have you done NaNoWriMo before? I have, yeah. Yeah. So I think that the, if you do 1,667 words a day for 30 days, um, I one time timed that when you're just doing a first draft and it's kind of rough, that I timed that I could get that accomplished on average between one and two hours of work. Mm -hmm. So like you could break that up, you could do that at different times of the day, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. And it's a manageable amount without being too unsustainable. So yeah, 500, 1000, even 2000 words a day, it doesn't have to break you in terms of budgeting your time, I don't think. No, I think the only time it, it does is when is when the words are really hard to get. And at that point, for me, at least, it usually means that there's something else wrong like I haven't planned it enough or I haven't really fleshed out the idea enough things like that yeah 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 when that happens for me I'll sometimes shift what scene I'm working on to and just kind of say mm. uh fill this in later or re-outline this later and I'll move on to the next plot point that I know about and see if I can get through it that way right or I'll spend the time just outlining instead of writing actual finished prose and that that helps too yeah. Yes. Outlining is very helpful. I used to not be like that, but I am now. <laughs> same, same. Well, we had promised you we were also going to discuss music in this episode, but we experienced some technical difficulties, unfortunately. So instead, we are excited to bring in Robin, a special guest, to discuss The Wave. 
So for this week's show, we have a special guest who is on here with us to talk about the novel and the film adaptation and the phenomenon of the wave. And we'll explain what that is. But Carrie and I are here with uh, Robin. Robin, go ahead. Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Okay. Um, Like you said, my name is Robin. I am a doctoral student in cultural studies and a fan, lifelong fan and obsessor of popular culture. I think that's very accurate. Yeah. And you, you also have some, some podcasting. Uh, what other podcasts are you on? Well, they are, they are currently in development. So I don't, oh, I have one. It's called, um, can I steal you for a sec to talk about critical theory? And I talk about the bachelor through critical and cultural academic theories, which is like the Venn diagram of people interested. In the <laughs> so, but if you're interested in that, yeah. Great. Well, so we all read and watched The Wave, or did everybody watch the After School special of it as well? I watched that. I tried to. What do you mean you tried to? I mean, it's... It's rough. Yeah. <laughs> I watched a couple minutes. Yeah, it's you got the gist. So maybe we should just kind of get that out of the way first. There was a 1981 film that was shown as an After School special on ABC, which starred a very young Bruce Davison as plucky yes. high school teacher. But mostly we're in this because it was made into a novelization, a YA novel um, by Todd Strasser, which was also published in 1981. And I think that the novel still kind of holds up. But does anybody want to give a little plot description of what this essentially is about? Since I did read the novel, I'm curious to hear what the novel is and then see how how the the production kind of followed that or not followed that. Okay, okay. So the novel is, it's a young adult novel. And it follows a teacher named Mr. Ross, who is a a history teacher, and he's trying to teach his kids about World War II, and they ask him why did the German people go along with the Nazi party and stuff like that, and he doesn't really have an answer, so he comes up with this experiment to try to illustrate how people can kind of just get swept up in an ideology and it kind of takes over the school within like a week. It's amazing how quickly it spreads through the school. People from other classes who aren't even in the class get sucked into this and he's trying to make it seem like a social movement. They're not actually doing anything racist in their group, if I remember correctly, but it's just sort of demonstrating that there can be sort of a totalitarian idea Um, Because one of his things is making the students be very regimented in their behavior and um, very regimented in their reactions and responses to him as a teacher. Yeah, there is a scene, and I'm sure it's in the book, where he makes them go outside and come back in and sit down orderly and kind of was like, well, you didn't do that fast enough. Kind of reminded me of kindergarten. There was a scene in Kindergarten Cop that also uses that (laughs) word. So I remember that. Yeah. And I think now this is an after school. So we're talking like a a good 43 minutes of content. So they really did have to, I'm sure, condense a lot. And I felt like from the the show, yeah, the, the ideology wasn't anything. It was more about the community and the everybody's equal and everybody has a part. And there was sort of the the kid they called the weirdo who, you know, was like, for the first time in my life, I'm part of something like very, very tropey. Yeah. But it it mainly focused more on that, I thought, was the highlight of the after school special. Yeah. By the end, I think the kids feel 
surprise that they were suckered in when they realized not to not to spoil it, but I want to get to part of the ending only because of what we're going to mention about this this thing. They feel as if they're surprised that this happened. But then the main the main upshot of all this, this is actually based on a real thing. This really happened in 1967 in California. And the experiment was actually called the third wave. And California high school history teacher Ron Jones was doing this and trying to demonstrate how Nazism could have spread or any form of fascist controlled government or political movement. So I guess I one of the reasons I got intrigued by this was, Robin, you actually have a social media post mentioning this, and I had never heard of it. And I was very intrigued and researched it and was like, this is really, this has some parallels to how people get swept up in any kind of movement. And especially nowadays, it just seemed really sort of prescient. So that's why I wanted to end up reading it and investigating a little bit. Well, this is actually part of a, of a, I guess I'm going to call it a genre that I really like, which is sort of popular social experiments that sort of become part of mass culture's knowledge. And I think they're really interesting because it sort of, it gets, now I think the way the novel was written in the after school special, like I'm sure there were some, there was some polishing to make it a neat story. I guess included in this genre would be like the Stanford prison experiment, Mm -hmm. which people use like Philip Zimbardo, like sort of toted around on talk shows to talk about how people could be evil the Milgram experiment with the shocking people. So it's kind of like this, this genre that I'm into about, I guess, social experiments that sometimes I think get misused in the public because when we apply sort of like psychological concepts, it sort of does get a little more simple, you know, simplified. But I think the idea is there. I should say I posted it because my brother and I who's two years older than me, always, we always sort of remember these things from childhood randomly and we'll like message each other just to be like, did I make that up? Or do you remember <laughs> that? And we had just talked about that oh. and I had started looking into it. So sometimes I have to check with him to be like, what? And we actually watched this in school. Oh, wow. I don't know what sort of discussion came from it, but I think it was like they showed it, the bell rang. And we all forgot it, but oh, wow. I mean, so I saw it in school. So that's kind of where I was coming from. I'm so glad you responded to my social media post because I was being kind of cheeky. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I feel like I miss a lot on, on places like Instagram and Facebook, but it was one of those where I happened to see it and was like, whoa, this looks really interesting. So I just feel like this, well, first of all, being in academia, this would never fly now as a legit experiment. And even I know, I was like, where's your IRB? <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, things like the Stanford prison experiment, the Milgram experiment, those are known to be these problematic experiments that did not go through the types of rigorous approval ahead of time that would happen now. But this kind of thing, I think that you could let it happen, but you would have to inform the students more what you were doing and you would have to like debrief them and you would keep it much shorter and more contained. But I also think that maybe they would just not approve it at all. Where did they get the money for that assembly and all the, you know, and other students? Yeah, it just, yeah. I think it relies on a more earnest time where teenagers maybe weren't so cynical. Yeah. You know, because like having the whole school into it. Also, can you imagine the parent calls you would get now? Well, they, they mentioned, I don't know if it's so much in the in the after school special, but Carrie, do you remember in the novel, I think there were parents who did protest and got upset. 
I would. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and the principal wants to shut it down, but the teacher is like, no, we can't, we have to see where this goes. It's out of my hands now. Yeah, yeah, it's it was really thing. kind of strange. And his wife is a teacher at the same school, and she starts getting weirded out by it, I believe. Yeah, that was in the after-school special. She was an English teacher, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to bring that up because she is, her name's Christy in the book, and she's one of the first people, obviously, who knows about it, but who also not protests against it, but is like, hey, this is not actually a good thing to do. And the student who does that too, the student whose POV we follow in the book is Lori. And I was just curious if it was kind of purposeful on his on the author's part that he made some of the first people to kind of get clued into what was going on and that it wasn't good, that he made them women. And what you guys thought about that? Hmm. I didn't really put that together. That was not something that I noticed, but that's a good point. And, and the women, the, the main female student, Lori, she is instrumental in getting people to kind of wake up from it and stop it. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you always, in a young adult thing, you always need a strong protagonist who is a teenager and who will kind of maybe affect change. But I, that's a good point that it is a, a female student who does that. In the show, it's her and her boyfriend. Yeah. Well, in the book, the boyfriend, she kind of gets him on board on her yeah, side. Yeah, he, he, he was on her cause, but she had to really convince him. In the, in the movie, she also wrote for the school newspaper yes. and wrote an op-ed against it. And, like, some people came to, like, rough her up about it. Yeah. So it was also, like, suppression of the media. Although... I want to live in a world where people read high school newspapers, <laughs> right. op-eds. I would love that. Yeah. It seemed like she wielded actually a lot of power as the editor of the newspaper. Yeah. And part of the reason why she started initially getting suspicious of the movement was because her her newspaper staff seemed to start getting really, they started getting zombie-like. They didn't care about the press or getting information out anymore. Didn't something happen where they wanted to like expose people who weren't? Yes. Part of it. They like wanted to weaponize the the paper, basically. They wanted to use the paper as a form of propaganda rather than a source of objective news. There you go. Hmm. That's interesting. (laughs) Now, I just happened to take a course on fascism like last year. Oh, wow. So like I understood the general concept, but like these actual intricacies like wouldn't have occurred to me unless I had like done all that reading and thought, you know, thinking about that. So I'm wondering if, like, the high school students really got all the intricacies of it. That's interesting. Probably not at the time, in my opinion. I don't think at the time they probably did. What is something I read about the experiments aftermath is that the the teacher and some of the former students have gone on to do speaking engagements and appear places to talk about it. So I think they probably get it now as adults in their 50s and 60s. They're still speaking about it? Like, they're still... Yeah, the guy's still alive. Oh, wow. I mean, personal branding, you know? Yeah. He's written about it, and he has done some appearances. He also wrote a play about it in 2011. Okay. What's next? Like a tone poem? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Good for him. Good for him. He did it. He put in the work. That's right. People are interested. And he is in his 70s now, so I don't know how much longer he has to milk it. But I do think it sounds like 
you know, some of the former students too were involved in doing some presentations with him. I wonder how much his approach has changed in the last four or five years. Like if he talks about it in a more tangible way, maybe. I don't know, but I think it's interesting that I'm I'm looking at the a Wikipedia page on this incident, and some of the see also's include groupthink and the Ash conformity experiments. Ooh, I don't know. I got to read about that. I don't know what that's about, but I think that perhaps he would. If I were him, I would focus on the fact that groupthink as an as an entity can can happen very very quickly and whether you want to apply that to a specific kind of movement or not it's really based on the fact that if you assert yourself as a leader you have the ability to really really influence people and quickly and thoroughly if you i think take control of the situation in a certain way i know that as a person who has taught before i certainly don't think that i could influence my students <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I, I'm laughing lovingly because I'm trying to see you do this. Yeah, no, I mean, but it also would not occur to me to try to do that. Yeah. Right. So if I were making an effort to do so, maybe I could. I don't know. I think that having this guy be a, a white man who at the time was in, you know, very, very early. I think he was probably in his early 30s when this originally happened. That is an age and a identity markers type that that can command a little bit more initial respect. Yeah, and the, and Bruce Davison, he he had charisma, you know. He is so cute. <laughs> <laughs> he was a little baby, although he was probably in his thirties. The after school special, as after school specials are, looking at it now, it feels it feels a little trite, and I even remember thinking that when I was watching that. So perhaps showing us the after school special rather than reading it might have lost it because we didn't see it in eighty one. We saw it a good, you know decade and a half later so maybe we it might have been the teacher was tired and wanted to show us something so I think that it does lose something with the after school special yeah I think if I were assigning this to students today I would just have them read the book yeah I mean if it's a short book there actually is another movie from two it's a German movie called The Wave but it's in German Mm. and it's a feature-length movie for adults that I in my mind said I was going to watch but I didn't I didn't get a chance to. So there was another movie made, which actually I would be interested in watching at some point. Yeah, I would too, actually. Yeah, me too. Cool. I would recommend the book. I think it's it's definitely YA. It's, it reads kind of like it's an easy, quick read. It's some. It comes off a little overly simplistic, but if you want to know more about what happened, I think this would be the thing to do. And if you want to watch the after school special... It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. So <laughs> yeah, really not that hard to find. Oh, just, I wanted to ask, how does it, what is the reveal in the book? How does he do the big reveal? Are they at an assembly? Yeah. And he says, this is your leader. And it's like Hitler yeah. introducing the Olympics or something. Yeah. Or at like one of the rallies. Is that how he does it? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty effective. Like I remember getting a chill when I first saw that. Yeah. I actually thought he... Like, he was like, this is your leader. And then they waited and the TVs were blank and everyone was kind of like, what's going on? Oh, yeah, yeah. The dramatic tension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then after he's like, there is no leader. Here's who. Oh, that's, yes. But then he does show. Yeah, so like Hitler's not the first reveal. Right, that's, I forgot. Yeah, that is true. Um, I think they couldn't, I, I watched the special after I read the book and it was similar enough that I couldn't remember. But yeah, he does, he does let them stew in it for a little bit longer in the book, 
which I thought was interesting. But he does show Hitler, so. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, like, jarring. Yeah. Right. As, like, somebody who was, like, currently in Hebrew school and they're, like, constantly scaring us that, like, the next Holocaust is around the corner. So it was it was very effective for me. Yeah. Oh, wow. I can imagine. Well, I think one of the main other takeaways, though, is if you have the inclination to do some kind of weird experiment on your students, that you might need to get somebody's permission. (laughs) And you could do a smaller version of it in class and like talk about why you're doing it. Like, I think it's not totally lost. Right. No, you absolutely could. Or you could, you could even just talk about this experiment, right? So that you're not even actually conducting it yourself. Um, I think it has value and it it does illustrate some, some pretty powerful points, but, um, but yeah, in terms of actually doing something like this again, I think you'd need some different way of doing it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But Carrie, I think I, one of the other reasons I want to talk about this was a few weeks ago when, when we were talking about the circle in a segment on this show. Oh, right. You mentioned that you didn't like social experiments, but this, I mean, is this partly why or this didn't help? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it helped. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Why don't you like social, you don't like social experiments if the people are not informed of it? Yes. Because that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes, it makes me uncomfortable. And I think I would be highly uncomfortable if it happened to me. Sure. Yeah. That's just kind of the big thought there. It's not like I don't think they're worthwhile or anything. Okay. It's more I'm personally uncomfortable by this. Sure. Well, and and with this case, certainly there was not a full informed consent among these students. With something like a reality show, I think there is probably a lot of things people have to sign and, and it's probably not that big of a deal, but... Yeah. But even even so, some dangerous weird things have happened over the years. So it's it's important to, you know, be dubious and keep things in mind and and point out unethical things like that when we see them. So, yeah. For sure. Okay. Well, thank you, Robin. You're welcome. Next time, we're going to talk about board games, Little Women, and we'll rewatch the pilot of The X-Files. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade, and you can find me on Twitter at Writer. And you can find me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us both together on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If you'd prefer to email us, you could do that at positivelypopculture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs>